Sanders coming to you from Children's Hospital Colorado and I'm here today with our awesome foot and ankle subspecialty day panel from our hybrid POSNA 2021 meeting series. I'm thrilled to present three of our authors today and two of our moderators Dr. Derek Kelly from Campbell Clinic and Dr. Maurice Bouchard from Sick Kids in Toronto. And so we'll be going through three really interesting papers, having an opportunity to discuss a little bit about those papers and, and hopefully making up for some of the uh, live action that, that some of us may miss this year. So we'll go ahead and start with a paper from uh, Dr. Jill Larson out of Lurie Children's in Chicago, which is titled Talectomy for the Treatment of Rigid Non-Idiopathic Clubfoot Deformity Long-Term Follow-Up. And so this paper essentially looked at, at patients that have spina bifida and arthrogryposis and looked at recurrent deformities. And they found that talectomy was performed in 5.6% of these cases, demonstrating that it is rare for clubfoot treatment in these two uh, patient populations, um, but that long-term outcomes do support talectomy for the treatment of rigid non-idiopathic clubfoot deformity and that performing a primary talectomy does have favorable outcomes in select cases as it does reduce the number of total surgeries required. This is a great paper with a more than 15-year follow-up, and I think we will have a great discussion about this. So I'll pass it off to Dr. Bouchard and Dr. Kelly to ask our author a couple questions. Well, thanks again, Julia, for having us. It's really fun to get to do this, and uh, especially since I may not make it in person. Jill, I have been waiting for this paper forever, so I'm really glad that you wrote it. The, the long-term follow-up is quite amazing from 1975 on, and, and you even have FMS scores. And I was, I was curious, there were two predictors of more difficult outcomes, which were low FMS scores and younger age. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit more about how those FMS scores were obtained and why you think these, these predictors ended up being significant. Well, thank you again to Posna and the moderator and just giving this opportunity to me. Um, but I would also like to thank my co-authors, um, Pedro Poggiali um, from Brazil, and then Luciano Diaz, um, the senior author, is the primary surgeon of this paper. And obviously having a cohort going back to 1975 is a huge resource. And so we're very grateful to him to have this data. So in reference to your question, um, FMS is the functional um, mobility scale. And of course, we didn't have it back in 1975. So um, the data that we are presenting in our paper is from the final follow-up. And what we found is that an FMS of 311, so a person being able to ambulate with at least uh, forearm crutches as a three was predictive of a good result. And a good result was defined as a braceable plantigrade foot. And so the theory behind this is that because they were ambulatory and they had um, a braceable foot, it actually helped the foot stay into a good position. Um, whereas those patients that were non-ambulatory may not have worn their braces as much and so did not maintain that nice plantigrade braceable foot and thus subsequently had recurrence. 
The other thing that we found in this paper, which was contradictory to what has been seen in the past, is that an older age actually was predictive of better outcomes. So a good result at final follow-up at 15 years or greater. And again, the theory behind that is that um, the patients that were older actually could maintain their brace wear a little bit better and also were a little bit more ambulatory and therefore actually were able to maintain their foot position. Whereas the children that were younger than age of five, we found um, had more severe deformity, were less likely to be ambulatory and less likely probably to be compliant with brace wear, thus having a higher risk of recurrence. Oh, that's excellent. And and I, I think you're really hammering home the point that the brace wear post-op is really quite critical to the outcome. Correct. Here at our institution, we do a minimum of full-time daytime AFO solid bracing for a year um, as well during the day, as well as at night. And then if they are ambulatory and we've seen a good result at one year, they can come off sometimes during the day for short ambulatory distances, but then always on at night. This is Derek Kelly from uh, Campbell Clinic in Memphis. So I know that Julia is not going to let let me ask all 20 questions that I have written down about this paper. I've always uh, wanted to study this and learn more about it. Uh, one question that uh, kind of a basic question, but I don't really understand from the abstract why you and the co-authors chose 15 years as a cutoff. Was there a statistical reason for that? Was there something more practical? Um, it's a great question. The answer is twofold. The first, the practical answer is that in the pediatric population, our average patient that underwent talectomy was about four and a half to five years. So 15 year follow-up would put them at about 20 years, which in a typical pediatric practice is when you age out of a pediatric practice. So that's the midterm cohort that most pediatric orthopedic surgeons would be able to see. What is unique about our data study is that we have an adult clinic. And so we have a cohort of patients that are seen up to the ages of 40 years of age. And so that's why 15 years plus the average age at surgery about five years would make you a longer than average follow-up patient. Additionally, we did a second subgroup analysis of breaking it down at 20 years versus 15 years, and there was no difference. So we found that 15 years was a really nice cutoff from the practical standpoint of when a pediatric orthopedic surgeon would probably stop seeing these patients. Speaking of outcomes and recurrence, uh, if recurrence did occur after talectomy, how soon did you see it and how was it managed? So our study found that on average, the recurrence would happen between one year and four years. No recurrence happened greater than five years. And that's consistent with what's been reported in the literature in the past. It truly is a pediatric condition. And once the patients pretty much reach skeletal maturity, it's very rare to have a recurrence. And so if you can get a patient braced and through that kind of initial growth period, the recurrence rates are much less. All right. So again, I'm going to pick your brain whenever we can get to meet in person and ask you a whole lot more about this. But I I guess based on what you have learned from this study, what is the ideal patient and the ideal age for talectomy and spina bifida and arthrogryposis? That's an excellent question. So our paper found that you definitely need to have a rigid deformity. Interestingly, our paper also found that a primary talectomy was associated with a positive outcome. And I think, again, that's because any 
surgeon knows that when you're working through a fresh anatomy without um, scar tissue from a PMLR or other neurologic issues, you're going to have more success. And so if a patient is greater than the age of five with spina bifida and arthrogryposis and does not have a braceable foot, I think a primary tylectomy is an option. Now, if you have a patient younger than five years of age, I would probably opt for a soft tissue procedure such as a PMLR um, before doing that. And then once a patient has reached skeletal maturity, uh, so in girls, probably that's in the teenage years, boys a little bit later, the options are probably more like a triple arthrodesis or maybe even a frame alternative. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. That was that was fantastic. And I, I think uh, I would agree with Dr. Kelly that if I had time, I would ask about a million more questions. So, so next we'll move on to a paper out of um, Baltimore from Dr. Katie Rosenwasser, who is now at Columbia. And this paper is titled The Atypical Clubfoot, Is It Doomed from the Start? So this paper essentially hypothesized that if diagnosed early and treated appropriately, the atypical foot had no greater risk for revision surgery than the typical foot. And so they did a, a great retrospective chart review, looked at the number of casts, pre-tenotomy, radiographic dorsiflexion improvement, post-tenotomy, and the need for revision surgery. Um, and then for the atypical group, they looked at the cast number at the initial diagnosis. And interestingly, um, they found that although post-tenotomy dorsiflexion improvement was statistically greater amongst atypical feet, revision surgery was done more often in this group and did require more extensive surgical techniques. Um, so a little different than the uh, initial uh, hypothesis. So I'll let uh, Dr. Bouchard and Dr. Kelly take over. So this is a this is a great great study to be able to discuss uh, a little more detail. Uh, there's so much information in here; it's really hard to get it all in the abstract. A couple of questions that came to my mind uh, in the abstract: It's mentioned that all patients had a tenotomy. Is that true of this practice that 100% uh, of clubfoot patients have tenotomy, or are there some of these patients who are able to be treated without the release? Thanks so much for your question, Dr. Kelly. And um, just like Jill, I want to be sure in the front to thank my co-authors, which was my co-fellow, Nick Nam, and then of course, John Herzenberg, who's the senior author on this paper. To answer your question, um, this is Dr. Herzenberg's 10 years of his clubfoot experience. In his typical club feet, he does have sort of the consistent with the literature, about 90% of his feet get tenotomies. He does check the lateral radiograph in clinic for all of his club foot. And so he, and if it's a unilateral, he compares it to the contralateral side to have um, a norm to compare it to. If they're bilateral, he will confirm for himself radiographic dorsiflexion is appropriate to bypass its anatomy. In his atypical experience, he does tenotomize 100% of the, of the kids. I don't think in his experience, and I I reviewed every club foot he's done for 10 years. I don't think he's had any atypicals that he did not synonymize, but it's about 90% of the typical feed. I've definitely stolen that pearl of wisdom from Dr. Hertzenberg as well with regards to the radiographs. Um, maybe you could tell us just a little bit more about how you defined an atypical club foot and also on the radiographs, what were you looking at to determine if they were uh, in indeed going to need a tenotomy or didn't need a tenotomy and what was a good result? Sure. Thank you. Dr. Herzenberg was the, the sole senior author and taking care of all the feet in this study. He um, defined his atypical foot in a similar way as to how it's described in the literature. 
the severe equinus and supination with that stubby appearing foot and occasionally that dorsiflexed uh, first toe. And then most importantly, that deep transverse crease. And so in our study, um, what was a little bit tricky to, to parse out was that we attempted to only treat what we were calling um, the non-iatrogenic uh, type clubfoot. And so we actually kept out of our data set any feet that came from the community or from elsewhere that we might call iatrogenic atypical feet that were perhaps casted in a way that we couldn't be sure of. And we wanted to actually just completely isolate the feet that maybe were atypical from the beginning. And so, um, and then in his, in his hands, in his practice, it's that deep transverse crease, that shortened and stubby appearing foot with a rigid Aquinas. Um, that was our definition for the atypical foot. To your question about the radiographic dorsiflexion, this was um, defined by a line that um, was portended down the tibial shaft and then the angle that it meets with a line that went across the calcaneus and a lateral um, x-ray. And so he would do a plantar flexion view, a neutral view, and a dorsiflexion view pre and post tenotomy. And so similar to how we feel, because um, mostly this is done by clinical feel, he was hoping for a minimum of 10 degrees of improvement uh, post tenotomy to be considered a reasonable clinical result. But the main reason he does that um, lateral radiograph for all comers is just to ensure that you're not being fooled into a midfoot break and that you're actually getting uh, true dorsiflexion through the through the foot. And so he feels like that's the way of protecting yourself from missing that. Just out of curiosity, is there a minimum angle that he would want between the tibia and the calcaneus to not do a tenotomy? Not that I could ever get him to disclose to me. And I did try. <laughs> All right, so you describe uh, modified Ponsetti maneuvers that alters uh, both the casting and the orthosis phase. So, so mm -hmm. what does that mean in this practice? Yeah, so when you, um, once the atypical foot was diagnosed, then we would switch over to the so-called four-finger technique, which would abandon forced abduction of the foot against the tailor head, and, and then and instead work to stabilize the hind foot, obviously correct cavus as we always do in the early stages and then dorsiflex the midfoot by getting the metatarsals up and in line, but abandon that abduction. And then often he would actually tenotomize a bit earlier than perhaps he would in the typical feet because rigid Aquinas is such a critical component to the deformity. And then in the bracing phase, it was um, 40 degrees of abduction in your boot orthosis as opposed to 60 in the typical feet. Well, I appreciate the uh, the honest reporting of additional surgery. Uh, I feel that some sometimes, uh, in fact, maybe in the past, some clubfoot studies have just really uh, hammered on the point that these feet never need surgery, and and I don't think we all believe that to be true. I think some of these feet are going to have surgery. So, in in this paper, in this patient cohort, what were the indications for additional surgical procedures, either the typical or the atypical foot? I will say, um, just as by way of background, this paper was born of. Dr. Herzenberg's supposition that he felt that he, these feet were getting less surgery. And so he, which is why our hypothesis was written in this way, that he felt that once adequately identified and with your casting maneuver and orthotic degrees of abduction changed, that you actually put these kids back on the track of the typical foot. And so he was a bit surprised to see that we saw more, um, more need for surgery in this group. Anecdotally, he thought perhaps that wouldn't be true. In this group, there weren't standard indications for returning to these various surgeries. Um, we only have two-year follow-up in this group. 
Um, but once kids were no longer able to be braced in their boots and bar orthosis, and typically they were recurring in Aquinas most often, they were um, treated either with recasting a repeat tenotomy or then soft tissue versus bony procedures, depending on how severe their recurrence was. So I think this is this is great uh, with the way that we're going with Clifford research in the last few years. I think we've sort of got the pretty good answers for the typical idiopathic foot and and how to implement a good Clifford program. But now the questions are on the fringes. How do you deal with these complex deformities and how do you deal with children who have other neurological diseases such as spina bifida and arthrograposis? I think this research is all going in the right direction. I really appreciate the, the last two papers for that reason. Absolutely agree. Thank you guys so much. Thank so you. we'll move on to the next. Um, so this paper is by Dr. Jacqueline Hill out of Texas Children's. And the title of it is, Does the Stabilization of the Calcaneocuboid Joint with a Steinman Pin in Evans Osteotomy Procedures Affect Its Incidence of Arthritis? And this is another paper that I was actually really, really excited to finally see because we this is something we always wonder. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about this recently. So the purpose of this study uh, was to determine the rate of arthritis following calcaneal osteotomy lengthening and to compare the rates between extended Steinman pin fixation as opposed to removing the pin during surgery. So they looked at radiographic imaging at follow-up to determine arthritis. Uh, they looked at uh, time to pin removal, size of the pin, and size of the graft, as well as possible risk factors. And they found that uh, CC joint arthritis rates were significantly higher in the group with post-operative pin removal compared to intraoperative pin removal. So um, big uh, highlight here. I think this, it, this shows something that we've all wondered about. And I think they brought up a great point in the end of the abstract, which is that uh, further study really should evaluate whether this pin is really necessary to prevent subluxation. So uh, let's have a great conversation around this. I'll turn it over to the moderators. Jacqueline, thank you for this paper. I think there was a bit of discussion around the topic of, of the need to pin the CC joint last year at Subspecialty Day as well. So it's kind of nice to get um, the more long-term perspective of, of it this go around. So I, I was curious since um, Julia ended uh, talking about subluxation and the whole point of the pin is to prevent it. It doesn't mention in the abstract if you observed any concurrent subluxation uh, at the CC joint in your patient population. And did you notice a trend as to whether there was more subluxation in one, the early removal group versus the late uh, or even intraoperative subluxation after removal of the pin? Uh, thank you. Thanks for the question. Thanks for um, having me. And I'd like to also acknowledge my co-authors. We did observe subluxation actually in both groups. We had more patients in the patient group where the pin was removed postoperatively in clinic than the ones that were removed in the operating room. But both groups did have subluxation. And when we looked at the statistics, we did not find any correlation between subluxation and the rate of arthritis. How frequent was that subluxation? So in the group where the pin was removed in clinic or post-operatively, it occurred in five patients out of 24, so slightly greater than 20%. And in the one that was removed in the operating room, it was seen in two out of our 15 patients. Can you speak a little bit more to how arthritis was defined and how do you think your length of follow-up uh, has bearing on how your arthritis was defined? So we use the Kilgren-Lorenz classification system to define arthritis and um, anyone who had a grade one or higher, and um, for those not familiar, a grade one is um, possible narrowing of the joint space and possible osteophytic lipping of the joint space. Um, so anyone that we recognize that in classified as having arthritis. 
we wanted at least a minimum of one year follow-up because when we were examining the x-rays that were closer than a year, it was really hard to differentiate the post-operative changes because of all the osteopenia. And on average, we had almost two years, three months of follow-up. I don't think that we're, our follow-up is long enough to have followed this group out to see um, if more develop later. Thank you. Uh, I was curious at what time point you started noticing those changes and if the definition included just joint space narrowing, is it possible that that would have been observed just because we're lengthening the lateral column and putting pressure through that joint by inserting a graft that's nearly a centimeter or so in length? Yeah. So because the study was um, done retrospectively and through a pretty large group of orthopedic surgeons, there wasn't great standardization of the follow-up in terms of how many follow-up x-rays there were and how often they were obtained. And so we really just took the last time point and we didn't have enough time points to say like how the joint space evolved. What I can say to speak to the joint space narrowing in relation to graphs to just having a graph is that we didn't observe narrowing in all of the joints and we didn't see any correlation in regards to graph size. So I have uh, two questions. I'm sure you're probably familiar with the study we spoke of before from last year from the TSRH group about this maybe being more of a rotational phenomenon than a subluxation. Uh, how does that uh, bear out in your study? How would you uh, how would you characterize that study as compared to yours? I'm not sure that we have enough X-ray data to compare the rotation versus a subluxation. The reason that I started or was interested in looking at this is because I observed some of my older patients who had long-term follow-up were presenting to me with some pain um, and x-rays showed um, arthritis in this joint. And so I wanted to kind of see how frequently that was occurring. You know, I actually was not, I'm, I fall into the group where um, I leave the pin in and take it out post-operatively. So I was surprised to see that people took it out intraoperatively. So that was kind of interesting. And then when we started doing the analysis, we realized there was a big difference between the rate of arthritis in the two groups. So I don't know that we have enough information. I think one thing that'd be really interesting to look at in the future is does the pin holding intraoperatively significantly decrease the rate of subluxation? And is that not changed if you remove it in the operating room? Um, I think that would be kind of like the next um, interesting topic to focus on or the next direction for this area of research. So I guess my question is now then, uh, you, uh, you left your pin in before the study. Uh, is that what you do now? Uh, or has this changed your practice? I still am leaving the pin in because I would like to do that study first to really look at the rate of subluxation. I'm kind of in the Mosca follower group where I kind of follow his technique pretty close. Um, one thing that I'm very careful about um, in terms of my technique when I pin is that I make sure that I'm happy with the position of the pin before I cross the joint. So I'm not crossing the joint multiple times. Um, that's really hard to kind of parse out from uh, different surgeries and op notes um, in terms of surgical technique and how many times a, a pin passed the joint. But I do wonder if there is some confounding in that. Awesome. Thank you guys. That was a fantastic discussion. Those are all really great papers. And I do just want to point out the, uh, the awesome amount of girl power that is on this uh, subspecialty panel right now. So Derek, uh, Thank you so much for being a champion for women because you're here with all of us. But really, I think it uh, does a great job of, of demonstrating the, the diversity that POSNA is working so hard to foster. So thank you all for your awesome research and a great conversation today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in.